Hi everyone, it's Scott. I wanted to share some exciting news about something new that we're trying with NAIS Member Voices. Starting this year, we're still going to be releasing new episodes, but we'll also be releasing some timely episodes from our archive. We hope this will help you to catch up on episodes you might have missed and uncover additional insight that can help serve you and your school. This episode is a re-release from last year at this time. We hope you enjoy. Hello everyone, and welcome to NEIS Member Voices. I'm Scott Donaldson, NEIS Member Engagement Coordinator, and today I'll be speaking with Nicole Dufashard, Head of School at the Advent School in Boston, Massachusetts. Nicole, welcome to Member Voices. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Excited to have you. How long have you been Head of School at Advent? This is my sixth year. Okay. How has the role changed since you started your time there? It's really funny. Somebody said to me, oh, you're not so new anymore. (laughs) There are days when I feel like I have been here many, many years. And there are days when I feel like I just showed up yesterday. (laughs) Um, You know, it's it's an interesting role, right? I mean, there's things that you could never be prepared for. in any facet. I mean, we, when two years in, we were in the process of built, you know, buying a building in downtown Boston. And I, and all of a sudden knew more about historic property than than anybody should know. Hmm. Um, And you have to be a quick study on that. So I think that there's a, there's a place at which for me, the, the newness of, of finding out things um, early on and like being, being unaware of maybe, you know, what, what all the little pieces of it could be. And so I, I, you know, I teach for the Diversity Leadership Institute, and I love to say, you know, the scope of my job is what I love the most. I love that I literally could have a kindergartner in my office who, who got a bead stuck up their nose, and I could help them. <laughs> and then I could be at the mayor's office with blueprints trying to figure out how we're going to um, negotiate, you know, a, a purchase of a new building in a historic, in historic background, to doing strategic planning, to just sitting with sixth graders and talking about their hopes and dreams. Like that array of work that you get literally in an eight hour day is phenomenal. It's fantastic. Um, and it keeps you in, in a space where things, where you have to be nimble. And there's certain things I think I would consider myself a little bit of a type A personality, um, but places where you um, have to be humble and vulnerable um, in spaces that you just didn't think that you'd have to show up that way, right? You think leader, I can, I can execute all of these things and do them well, um, but there's a human side to it that, that I didn't really get until I was in it, that I realized that, you know, things that were my toolkit from diversity and inclusion work in terms of compassion and empathy and competencies around culture and understanding identity, that's the stuff that I bring to work every single day with our parents, with our students, with our faculty, with our board, with community members in Boston, um, with the way that we engage with, you know, educators that visit us from all over the place to see what we do those tools are the most important. I think that I I dig into that toolkit every day (laughs) in a really different way than I do about finance or what I knew about development or um, what I knew about admissions and enrollment and and, and that aspect. Right. And and building on that, I wanted to ask you about your communication style. Do you think you have a a certain communication style or, or preference in your role? I, I was just having this conversation with somebody yesterday that said to me, um, a, a leader in our in our community that was talking about how um, that they don't think that people feel their appreciation. And I said, well, what do you say to them? And they said, you know, you do a good job and these are the great things that you're doing. 
and it was very, there was a list of things like, you know, you did the budget well and you did these things well. And, and he said, I want them to feel heard that I, that I see them, that I see that they're doing the work. And I said, and sometimes you just have to be like, you rock. You were amazing today. <laughs> right. For me, I think I'm pretty authentic in my voice. Uh, what you see is what you get in many spaces, but I, I want to celebrate those things. I'm excited about what we do. And so there's a love and passion, I think, that comes out pretty clearly in terms of our school. I'm not so certain I would be a good head in some other spaces. I think I'm a good head in these spaces. I think there's a place where the, this community understands me and I understand them and we live in our mission in a really meaningful way. So I always want to be authentic in, in the things that I say and the things that I want us to do. And in not in a in a calculated way, in a more intentional way. Like, where will this grow us? What are the things that we want to make sure that we do? And I like relationships. So I think the thing about the space that we have right now at, you know, 200 kids and 158 families is that I know everyone really well. I know their siblings. I know their cousins. I know who drops them off and their nannies and their sitters and, you know, their grandparents that as a community, uh, we really have proximity that is really meaningful. And I think that's when really good work gets done. And then I don't necessarily worry about my voice in that as much because I know that they know that the passion that I have for the school and the things that we're doing, even when we're having really hard conversations, comes down to making us a better community in a meaningful way. And I want to talk a little bit about how we can improve diversity and equity and inclusion practices in independent schools, because that obviously seems to be a, a passion of yours and an emphasis at, uh, at Advent. So uh, is there a certain approach that, that you take to, to fostering a diversity and diverse leadership in your school? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. There's no one size fits all. And I think that feels really different than maybe curriculum spaces in a space where you can say that this is the way that you need to teach math, and this is the way that you need to teach reading, I think communities have their own culture, right? And so understanding what the culture of the community is, understanding where they are, um, what areas they need to improve, what areas they need to be more thoughtful of is different by school. So even as a diversity practitioner, it was really hard to kind of walk into a space and say, these are the things that you should do, and you all will be on the right path, right? You needed to understand really where they were, and that takes time. That takes relationship building. That takes understanding of the little nuances that schools have in their culture. Uh, the ways at which you're going to make change um, isn't, isn't – um, a perfect plotted point. And so that just looks messy, I think, <laughs> for many people, and it feels hard. Um, and it's super personal. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that schools are doing, I, you know, I think about NIS, for example, and utilizing AIM, right? That is a culture survey. That's not just a diversity and equity and multicultural. It is a cultural survey of the school so that you know where your blind spots are. So that you have an understanding of how those things sort of translate into the classroom, into your carpool, into, you know, your parent association. And so I think that one of the things that all of us have to be aware of is that there isn't, there isn't a, just a sort of a magic wand of number of kids in terms of diversity or kinds of kids in terms of diversity. It really is um, sort of a cultural growth, which is hard to do. And I think the most meaningful work, you see it transcribed in curriculum when kids feel like they can show up and are represented in their, in their curriculum with the kinds of books they're reading, with the conversations they're having that are meaningful to them, their willingness to engage in all of the other um, is much more meaningful and you get a better sense of who they are and who they will be as students um, when we concentrate on equity and inclusion in particular. 
And are there other ways that your school recruits and, and nurtures and retains top talent in your faculty and administration? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the challenges as a whole is for us specifically, <laughs> being in the middle of Boston, none of our faculty really live in Boston. Mm. Um, we are a city that is... Um, extremely expensive in many in many facets and so um, that conversation of how to retain uh, really smart and talented and hungry faculty along the way when life happens and could you afford to be still commuting when you're in your 50s an hour and a half to school every day mm-hmm. um, and what that looks like so we have a lot of discussion around again kind of that dis- the the teacher rubric on taking care of faculty in their different stages. So, you know, when you're a new teacher, there's lots of things that you need. When you're a young teacher, you know, five or seven years in, when you're 10 years in, when you're 20 years in, what does that look like and how do we continue to foster that growth? When we look at recruiting, um, we really, because we are a progressive school and because we really think about the tenements of social justice and Reggio Emilia, um, we look to colleges and programs around those things in particular. So looking at uh, universities that are teaching and education that have Reggio background, that are thinking about Reggio Emilia philosophy and pedagogy, um, when we're looking at um, the kinds of work that people have done in social justice work. So we also have, you know, folks that have been in community partnerships or outreach and community or other organizations that are interested in teaching in a meaningful way. So we've really expanded, again, sort of from of course, the independent schools and the public schools, um, we've used some recruiting firms. Um, we, you know, we think about what that really looks like in terms of who's going to be in our building and what, what they bring to the table that is mission-centered and mission-aligned. And that brings people in, right? People are really interested in what we're doing mm-hmm. and how we do that. My ultimate goal as a you know, head of school and taking care of all of our faculty and staff is to make sure that we can celebrate them and honor them in that way also through pay. Right, through making sure that they can have a, a living that doesn't mean that they have to commute from an hour and a half away. So what's really interesting on that end is that we actually have a, a diversity, it's a it's a task force through the board of the board of trustees that is really looking at kind of the goals of compensation and support alongside professional development and what what are our goals for the next ten years to make sure that we can, you know, increase that that process along. And I, I think we've talked about uh, what you like about the role, and I think maybe we touched a little bit on on some challenges. Could you talk a little bit more about anything else that you find particularly challenging and, and how you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, we are a lower school, right, in, in one of the really biggest markets of independent schools, right? The density of um, Boston Metro is fierce <laughs> in comparison to some other places. And so I, I'm really sort of fascinated about the enrollment challenges that schools are having in a really meaningful way um, that I don't think have anything necessarily to do with the schools themselves, but have to do with some of the angst of making good decisions for children that we can't necessarily see in 10 years, right? I mean, my husband would say to me, in your professional opinion, how much money should we put away for my 10-year-old, you know, for college? And I and I said, it's changing so fast. My professional opinion is in 10 years, it's either going to be a million dollars or it's going to be free, right? I don't right. know. Mm-hmm. And that's a really anxious place to come from when you're thinking about 
the choices that you make for schools for your children. And so um, in a space that there's a lot of options for families to feel that anxiety from families, to wonder if, you know, the decision they make right now for a four-year-old, you know, will definitely change their trajectory as a 20-year-old. Um, and we're fortunate in Boston, we have a ton of amazing, amazing schools. There's no wrong choice to make. And even in the public setting, there's no wrong choice to make in certain schools in the city. And so I think that that enrollment sort of ebb and flow that's happening of, I have choices I can make, and now what is the choice that I have to make, um, as opposed to what's the choice I want to make. And so I think independent schools trying to define their value in a different way to market to families and, and really we, we should go back to the basics of this is the value of our school and find those that value our school in the same way. I just think that's a, that's a troubling time for independent schools in a different way than ever before. Are there certain places that you turn to for inspiration when you encounter challenges like this or, or many maybe places that you feel that would be helpful for schools to turn to for inspiration at times like these? I don't know. You know, one of the things I really love about here is that we have a ton of educators that come to sort of see what we do. So early childhood, elementary, social emotional learning, progressive, that kind of thing. Um, what's really interesting is I think the best resource for faculty and for administrators is other faculty and administrators. I think we find ourselves so locked in our spaces, right? We're, we're doing good work. We're mired in the work. It feels really good, but we never get a chance to sort of lean back and view, um, compare and contrast and kind of speak a shorthand with somebody that gets the kinds of things that you get. I have an amazing cohort of heads, both locally and nationally, that I can pick up the phone and call. You know, I, I want to know what's happening in trends. I want to know um, what other schools are really thinking about on the forefront when we're talking about, you know, being innovative in our education. And again, not that one size fits all and that, you know, if somebody's doing one sort of curriculum, that that's the way to do it. But really um, being able to, to see what other communities are working on and what they're struggling with and what they're succeeding at. I think there's some really good space in there. I also think there's some really good space um, in dialogue and conversation happening right now in public schools about what's the right way to really think of, you know, a one-size-fits-all model that doesn't actually work and how are schools trying to be creative and thoughtful in their own communities uh, when they have some constraints that independent schools don't have. I read anything and everything I can get my hands on. We're doing this new um, sort of listing in our in our weekly newsletter of what you're reading and, and my assistant was like, stop sending me stuff. Like, I can't include all of it. <laughs> and you mentioned conversations that you have or have had with colleagues and and peers and I'm curious uh, if there are pieces of advice that really stick out to you that you've received or any advice that you'd like to share that sticks in your mind? I, I think it was Ravita Bowers actually who said to me when I was looking at schools and I was kind of wavering between you know what 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 should I do next and she said to me find a place that you love she said you know when it's really good it's amazing. <laughs> when it's really bad, it's terrible. <laughs> and so if you know that you believe in what you're doing and the mission aligns with who you are and what you want to do and the values you see in education, it's easy to get up in the morning even when it's terrible. And I really believe that. And I tell everybody that, like I just, anybody that I can tell that, I think that because independent schools have such 
different ways and different spaces that you can be in and also just an array of options. 1,600 member schools in NIS and the options as a professional are astounding. I think colleagues of mine that have found a passion or a vision around the things that schools are doing in a really meaningful way have been successful even when it's really hard. Um, and some of my colleagues that have, have not really believed in it, but believed in the job itself have not done so great either, right? And I think that that's a, that's a, that's a strange space to be in, to not necessarily live and breathe at all by yourself, but also really believe in what it is that we're putting forward um, with our children. I mean, we have a really amazing opportunity to shape what's next in our society, in the country, and so use it for the ways that you really want to make sure you see things happen and, you know, things that align with you as a leader. Are there other lessons that you've learned along your leadership journey uh, or mentors that you've had that have been really formative that have helped you end up where you are today? You know, people have always said, you know, find the work-life balance. Um, Ravita Bowers also said, you know, um, there is no, there is no like work-life balance. It's like managing the imbalance, um, which I kind of appreciate a lot because it cuts you some slack, right? <laughs> to know that sometimes you're going to be really great at a, as head of school and not so great as a parent. Um, and sometimes you're going to be a really awesome parent and not such a great head of school or awesome spouse and not a great head of school or vice versa. Um, <laughs> And so I think, you know, the, the opportunity to be able to, to cut yourself a break every once in a while to know that, you know, when people say unplug, it, it means really do that. Um, I'm not so great at that, actually, six years in, I have to say. I think um, my personality is such that I would work all the time. You know, my, my, my first years um, as a professional, I was a a uh, resident hall person in student affairs. And so, you know, when you live on campus and you're it's like a Friday night, you could say, somebody says, I need something, you're there, you could do it. That has always been my, that's always been my go-to. And so finding some, some places where I can take a step back. But I would say, you know, anybody would say that, you know, finding the balance of um, giving yourself some slack is, is, is a good one. You mentioned that when you got the role of head of school, you took the time to go and speak with other heads. I'm interested if you could talk a little bit more about your learning style and your approach to to new things. Um, like I said earlier, I read everything. I think uh, my husband would probably say my ego is big enough to think that I could do anything if I read about it. I, I, like, I like to absorb things. And so for me, I want to be... Um, uh, like have intimate knowledge. And so I do think that if I, when I went on this like track to sort of talk to heads of school, it, it wasn't this thought in my mind that I was going to get this like perfect opinion about how to do it well. It was, these are all the ways that it possibly could translate and I got to find mine. I think that's the way that I've been as a learner, um, even as a, as a small child, like I wasn't the kid who wanted to do um, sort of like math fact sheets. I wanted to know about numbers, right? I wanted to be intimate with them. I wanted to know, you know, that there are nine combinations to make the number five, right? Like I wanted to know that. Um, and so I think that's the way that I, I, I approach everything. It's like there's so much more to know. There's so much more to understand. Um, I know when I have a meeting with a family, 
about you know the next school's process and where their children will go after they graduate from here that when they sit at the table it's not just that it is their whole life work with this child of did they make the right decisions did they you know do all the sleep patterns the right way did they feed them enough did they give them the nutritious meals did they do all the homework they were supposed to it is now the this articulation of this work that they have done and all the trials and tribulations that have gone with it that's heavy stuff at a table to just talk about like what's the next school your child will go to as a seventh grader. Um, and so knowing that about people and knowing that about things in particular, I think is, is how I want to be involved and invested in the work that I'm going to do. Um, so I take everything on like that. I want to, I want to talk about it. I want to get underneath of it. I want to look through it. Um, I want to understand it. And so I like to talk out loud. I like to, you know, I'll say to my staff, I'm putting this out to the universe because I really want to know. Um, as a leader, when I first started, that was really hard for people. I realized that my voice had weight. And so I said, has anybody ever wondered about X? And then all of a sudden, X would be a thing that they would want to do. And I really just wanted to wonder about X. For <laughs> I didn't want to do X. Um, and so trying to find that balance for folks to know that this is how I learn and how I absorb and how I think and, and come to decisions um, is that I want the diversity of thought at the table. Um, and understanding all of the nuances so that I can make an informed decision and know the impacts of that decision. Not just that it's the decision that I'm making because I have good information, but what are the impacts of this decision that are going to be so that we can also then get our arms around people where the impact is too heavy or celebrate when, you know, when it's the right, when the right space. And I feel like we've been building towards this question for a while, but what are you reading at the moment? <laughs> what am I reading at this moment? Actually, right now I am reading um, two books, <laughs> and uh, neither of them are actually school books, which is a good thing. I'm trying to, to do that as well, but I'm reading uh, We Are the Animals um, by Justin Torres, um, and it's going to be a movie. I guess it is a movie right now, but um, it's this really amazing uh, Puerto Rican author who talks about growing up in upstate New York with his three brothers. It's just this really beautiful, it's a really easy read short story. And then I also re am rereading The Sympathizer, which is um, by Nguyen, and it's about the Vietnam War, sort of like a political space about the Vietnamese army and like being in a space where you are country tied, but also disagree with all the things that are happening and trying to figure out, you know, how you navigate in this new world. It's a really good book. I read it before, but I was feeling called to it. Uh, that is also something that I do. I reread stuff um, for inspiration. So my winter, my winter reading um, was <laughs> Lord of the Flies, 1984, and Animal Farm. Oh wow! Um, but I was like, I'm going to reread these again. I've actually think I've read To Kill a Mockingbird three times in the past two years. So I just mm -hmm. like I need to like recenter in some space. Do you have? certain mementos or tchotchkes or books or personal items that you hold near and dear or that travel with you from from desk to desk in your role? Yeah, so anybody that knows me and including my students really well knows I'm a huge Wonder Woman fan. It's really interesting. The kids interviewed me for the newspaper about why Wonder Woman a couple years ago. And I was explaining to them that, you know, I come from this very um, big Puerto Rican family where I think I'm fascinated by the nuance that Puerto Rican sort of culture on the front end looks very patriarchal, but it is indeed very matriarchal. Mm -hmm. And so I have these really strong, amazing women in my family. Side note, my mom's mother is married to my dad's brother. 
Um, so there's like a very intertwined Puerto Rican family. So she was the first character that sort of spoke to me. She was like one of the non-blondes of, of, the, of the superhero <laughs> canon. She was uh, raised by amazing women. It was a whole, you know, island of women. Um, she spoke truth and, and, um, and helped people speak truth. Uh, you know, she was beautiful and all of these things, but it, it spoke to me as a kid a lot, just like here was this woman who was taken from her, you know, who left her family behind this series of women and then worked in this like very man kind of world, but, you know, people honored her and she wasn't just like known for her beauty. She was also known for the fact that she was super smart. I mean, I just, there's lots of things about her that I dig. Um, the kids bring me Wonder Woman stuff. They, they, um, they remind me when the movie came out, like, you know, had I seen it, wanted to have a serious conversation about it. Um, parents give me Wonder Woman things now. Uh, the, the best story that I guess I would have is when I was three, or two and a half, I got a Wonder Woman bathing suit that I literally wore for two years, I think. Every picture you see me in from two to three and a half, I'm in this bathing suit at some point. And I'm fascinated, you know, the, the now they, you know, she's, she's popular again, uh, Miss Diana Prince. But I, but I think that there's still a really great sort of message around being authentically who you are and, and engaging and being powerful and also, you know, speaking truth and making sure that other people find, you know, just, just cause in those spaces too. So she's definitely my, my, uh, my inspiration always. Well, that's a great note to end on. Nicole, it's been a real fun, uh, fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. So <laughs> thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for listening to this episode of NEIS Member Voices. We've included some great resources on some of the areas we discussed at neis.org slash membervoices. And you can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes. Please be sure to listen, rate, review, and subscribe to a new episode each month. And don't forget, we always want to hear from you. So please share your stories, questions, and comments with us by sending them to membership at neis.org.